It was way back in the 60s, that's the 1960s, when I received a very interesting-looking postcard that purported to come from somewhere in Eastern Europe. Now, remember the context. This was in the days of the Cold War and the Iron Curtain. And this particular postcard purported to invite me to celebrate the Polish millennium. Yeah, you can laugh. (laughs) I didn't know what the Polish millennium was either. I knew lots of Polish jokes. (laughs) And living in Milwaukee, I've needed them. But uh, Polish millennium, I didn't know. So I assumed it was a practical joke that some of my friends were playing on me. And uh, I did nothing about it. I thought I would just treat it with the disdain it deserves. But then I got a phone call about two weeks later from somebody who said, my name is Kapitaniuk. And he had a very heavy accent. And he said, I invite you to the Polish millennium. You do not answer. Why you not answer? We invite you to the Polish millennium. Well, I didn't tell him I didn't know what it was. So I said, well, tell me about it. He said, we celebrate 1,000 years since Christianity came to our land. We have many problems, but we want you to come and help us celebrate. So I said, well, with all due respect, why, why me? And he said, well, he said, the Protestants want Billy Graham to come, but the Catholics veto it. And the Catholics want the Pope to come. And the communists veto it. And everybody is upset and argue about Billy Graham and the Pope. And nobody has heard of you. (laughs) So we invite you to come. (laughs) And so I did. I went and had a wonderful time behind the Iron Curtain in some of those Eastern European countries. I was reminded of that this week when I got a very strange letter purporting to come from College Church, Wheaton. (laughs) And this letter said that a T-shirt would be provided (laughs) and I was to wear a T-shirt. Now, I know College Church, Wheaton, and I know its reputation. And I've seen your big white pillars out there. And I know that T-shirts and white pillars do not go together. So I decided this was another practical joke. So I put on the T-shirt, as you can see this morning, but I brought with me very carefully in my car a jacket, a shirt, and a tie. So if this... If this is offensive to you, you can come to my car and I'll show you my jacket. Okay, well, it's, it's, a, it's a great joy to be with you. And it's actually a great joy to be here on a summer celebration day when we have the opportunity of celebrating God's goodness, not least the gift of summer time. 
I, um, I was thinking about a story I heard some time ago, and I thought it might be suitable to tell this story here at College Church Wheaton, because uh, probably many of you here at some time in your growing years went to Sunday school, and uh, it's a story about Sunday school. A teacher said to her class of little boys, now children, I'm going to tell you a story about a little friend of mine, and I want you to pay attention, and I want you to think through what I'm telling you, and see if you can recognize who my friend is. My little friend has a big brown bushy tail. And he hip-hops across the grass and runs straight up the trunk of a tree and along a branch. And along the way, he gathers nuts and he pops them into his mouth until his cheeks bulge with nuts. And then he takes the nuts out and he pops them in a hole in the trunk of the tree. And he leaves them there for the long, dark, cold days of winter. Now, children. Who can tell me who my little friend is? One little boy tentatively put up his hands and he said, Yes, John. Well, he said, I know the answer is Jesus. <laughs> but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. When, when you were a kid growing up in Sunday school, did, did you ever feel disconnect? You know, when you got these stories and you knew what you were supposed to see in the story, but you didn't see it, and you knew what you thought, and you knew what you believed, and you knew what you got, but unfortunately there was something else that didn't quite disconnect. Do you know what I mean? I was thinking about this when I did a book signing in New Jersey some time ago. A book signing, in case you're not sure, is when a publisher is trying to get an author's new book out to the public. And so what they arrange is for you to sit in a bookstore with a pile of your books there, and the admiring crowds will come and stand in line for hours just to have the chance to shake hands and have you sign the book. That's the theory. In practice, hardly anybody ever comes. Anyway. <laughs> so I was sitting there with my pile of books, looking at my pile of books, and gazing around a totally empty bookstore. <laughs> and then a lady came in with three little girls. And the little girls were obviously just killing time, and they were walking around, and they came across this rather pathetic old gentleman sitting there, with a pile of his books. And so they circled me at a very, very safe distance. And so I thought I should engage these little girls in conversation. There was no one else to talk to. And so I said, I've, I've just written a book. Oh. I said, it's called Holiness Without the Halo. Oh. I said, do you know about holiness? And they said, yes. 
said, let me ask you a question then. If you could choose between being happy and being healthy and being holy, which would you choose? And two of the little girls immediately became fascinated with their shoes. (laughs) But the youngest one, a bright little girl, she put up her hand and she said, it was a classic answer. She said, I know the answer's holy, but I'd really rather be happy. Disconnect. I know the answer's holy, but I'd really rather be happy. You know? It, it's, it's a common problem, isn't it? What our desires are and what we know or what we believe or what we think they ought to be. And I find, quite honestly, when it comes to the subject of holiness, either people don't particularly want to go there, or if they do, they go there with a whole lot of misunderstandings. So I thought I'd like to talk to you about holiness, just for a few minutes. It will be a few minutes, but it will seem much longer. <laughs> let's, um, let's turn into our Bibles to Leviticus, chapter 20. Leviticus, chapter 20. One key verse here, verse 26. The Lord is speaking to the children of Israel. They have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've had a miraculous deliverance. They have been brought safely through the Reed Sea. They have now spent some time in the deserts, and they have come to a point where they are being carefully trained and instructed about life in the, new, in the new environment that God has provided for them, the promised land. And one, one of the ways of summarizing all these instructions is found in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. This is what he said. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Okay, that's, that's a, just a, a very succinct but dense passage of Scripture. Now, one thing that is not apparent in our English translations is that the expression set you apart that you find right at the end there, I have set you apart, is actually uh, basically the same word as holy. So there are really three mentions of the topic in one very short sentence. So let me read it to you again slightly differently. You are to be holy to me because 
I, the Lord, am holy, and I have holified you among the nations. I have holified you. Obviously, there isn't such a word, but it gets the sense of what is actually said here. So, there are three things about holiness here. You are to be holy. The Lord says, I am holy. And he said, I have holified you, or I have made you holy. Now, we need to be clear about those three things. Now, it's important we define our terms. Communication is very precarious at the best. Have have you ever thought about this? That if you have somebody communicating something to you, they will of necessity be using terms, terminology, words. Now, the assumption of the person communicating with you is that you understand what they understand by the term. But that's a huge assumption. It is perfectly possible that you have a a lengthy conversation with somebody and you are delivering your soul on the topic of choice with great erudition and the person is listening and nodding and smiling and reacting to it all. The reason they're nodding and smiling is not because they know what you're talking about, because they're not thinking in terms of the term as you are. They are thinking in terms of that term using their own definition. That's why, you see, the public speaker has a golden rule. If I can be misunderstood, it will happen. If I can be misunderstood, it will happen. So our job is to make it as difficult as possible for people to misunderstand what we're talking about. Define your terms. Now, I'm going to define holy for you. I discovered through talking to people who know far more about Hebrew than I do, and that's 99% of the world's population. I discovered that the Hebrew word for holy is related to the verb to cut. You know, knife, cut. So here's a story to illustrate it for you. You are working busily at home one evening. You are cutting up the ingredients for a salad. The telephone rings. You are momentarily distracted and you nick your finger as you drop the knife and rush over to pick up the phone. You pick up the phone, engage in the conversation, put the phone back, you're thinking about the conversation, and you turn back and you say, now what was I doing? Oh yes, I was cutting up the salad. Then you look at the salad and it looks slightly different from when you left it. And then you remember. You remember that when the phone rang, you were distracted and you cut your finger. But you didn't realize how severely you'd cut it until you look at the ingredients of your salad and they're nestling in the ingredients of the salad. (laughs) Is the end of your finger. Cut. And you say to yourself, oh dear, 
I have cut my finger. I have cut my finger so severely that the end of my finger is now totally separate from the rest of my finger. In fact, it is so thoroughly separate, it is set apart. (laughs) In fact, this end of my finger that is separate and set apart is wholly other. It is totally distinct. Or if I want to lapse into the vernacular, I could say it is something else. Separate, set apart, wholly other, totally distinct, something else. What have I just done for you? I've defined holy. That is the fundamental meaning of the word holy. Now, somebody is going to say, oh, hold it a minute. That's not what I understand by holy. What I understand by holy is sinless, perfect, being very, very disciplined to the point of asceticism, perhaps, very very unappealing, quite frankly, denying yourself all this kind of stuff. That's my understanding of holy, all right? Well, look at the use of the word holy in the Bible. You you remember that in the temple they had all kinds of instructions about what they were to do with the sacrifices, and and always remember that all those sacrifices, you know, all those bulls and goats and sheep and stuff like that, remember all those carcasses have to be hauled around the place. They needed implements, and these implements were holy. That's what they said. They they talked about holy pots and pans. Now, have you ever seen a sinless pot? Or have you ever come across an ascetic pan? Probably not. But in actual fact, the Bible talks about holy pots and pans. Take off your shoes from off your feet, for the place whereon you are standing is totally sinless ground. Right? Wrong. Not sinless ground at all. It's take off your shoes from off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Set apart. Holy distinct. Something else. Separate. You go to a place sometime, and we discover that a piece of land, a piece of ground, (laughs) is very different from the rest of the ground around it. One of my favorite places, one of my favorite cities in the whole wide world, is Cape Town, South Africa. And I've been there many, many times. And often when I'm there, I stay with friends in a place called Rondebosch. And in the center of Rondebosch is Rondebosch Common. It's all, the whole area is built up. It's on the foothills of, uh, of the Table Mountain. But Rondebosch Common is common land. That means it is not privately owned. 
It was deeded to the city, and the deeds say that no building must take place on it. So it is in its natural, pristine state, and it's a beautiful place to run early in the morning. And it's set apart. It's wholly other. Totally distinct. It's something else. It is consecrated land. So look at the verse again. You are to be separate, set apart, wholly distinct, something else for me. Because I, the Lord, am totally distinct, utterly separate, completely set apart. I, the Lord, am something else. And I have made you set apart, separate, distinct, holy other. That's basically what it's saying. Now think about it. What in the world is involved in those three things? What is involved, what is involved in this idea that God is holy? For start off. And then what is involved in this strange idea that he has holified us? And then, and then what does it mean? If he has holified us, then why are we told that we are to be holy? This is so full of huge questions on the subject of holiness. Well, well look, at, look at the text. It's very straightforward. It starts out by giving us instruction. You are to be holy to me. God is not making a suggestion here. He is making a statement of fact, a fundamental requirement. This is what he's looking for. He is looking for a people who are something else, totally distinct, thoroughly other. Now, that, that, that's basically what it's about. We, we may say, you know, God, I don't really feel particularly interested in being wholly other and something else. To be perfectly frank, I'd much rather be accepted. I'd like to fit in. I'd, I'd like, actually, not to be regarded as slightly weird or something other. I mean, who would want that? Why should I want to be what you seem to be telling me I should be? Why? <laughs> Have you ever dared ask God why? Probably occasionally, but not when anybody was around. I remember the first time I tried that with my father. My father was an authoritarian gentleman, and so he issued instructions, unmistakably clear instructions. And I went along with it because I really was just a kid, and being a kid, you don't have options. It's not fair. One day, however, I plucked up courage and I asked the great question. After he had, in his sonorous voice, 
announced what I was to do, I said to him, why? And his answer has rung down through the ages to me. (laughs) You know what his answer was? You know what his answer was, don't you? Because I said so, which means I don't know. Because I said so. Now, look at this verse again, because it's beautiful. You are to be holy to me because I said... Oh, oh, no. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. Oh. He actually, he actually pauses to give us a reason for what he's requiring of us. It's not gracious. If, everybody, if anybody has the right to say, because I said so, it is he. And he doesn't do it, doesn't pull rank on us. He said, if you really want to know why I'm telling you to be holy, I'll tell you. It's because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Oh, and by the way, he says, and for good measure, I won't just give you one answer, I'll give you two. Go back to the text. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and, now I like the word and, it means I haven't finished yet. It's a favorite word of preachers. (laughs) And, and notice his second reason, I have set you apart. I have Holified you. So those two pretty good reasons, aren't they? Okay, so what have we got so far? Holy means separate, set apart, etc., etc. God says, I am holy, set apart, totally distinct, etc. You, because I am holy and you are related to me, you too are to be holy. That's the first reason. And secondly, That is the purpose for which I have holified you. I have set you apart so that you might be set apart. All right, now let's look in a little more detail here. This will have to be quick as well. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. Just turn back to verse 7 of Leviticus chapter 20, and there's a similar verse there, but with one important difference. Verse 7, Leviticus 20. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Now, you see, see where that differs from the other one? Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. The other one says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. Verse 7, he doesn't say, I am holy. The first reason he gives is this. You are to be holy to me because I am. And then, your God. Four little monosyllables. I am your God. Let's start with this your God 
little statement. <laughs> Put in very, very simple terms, our world doesn't understand something that God has been proclaiming forever. Do you know what it is? God says, I am God, and you are not. That is a shock to the human system. That is something we resist. That is something that people will go down to their grave fighting. It is something that in one form or another comes naturally to us. We want to be God. We want to be in control. We don't want to yield. We don't want to submit. We don't like that sort of thing. I want to be free to be me. And God said, uh-uh, you're God. I'm God, and you're not. Now then, God, having got that very important point across to us, called himself your God, he then gives a little explanation. This is very simple. It's very brief. It's wrapped up in two very little words. I am. Now, you will notice that in both these verses, Lord is L-O-R-D in uppercase letters, which means, as you know, that this translates a Hebrew word, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton. Don't worry about that if you're not familiar with the word. I thought I'd mention it so that you would know I, I know it. <laughs> so, the Lord, uppercase letters. You see, and this, this is God's name. Now, this is what they tell me. They tell me that Yahweh is related to the verb to be. And the verb to be can be conjugated so that it becomes I am. That's why God likes to call himself I am. That's why Jesus got into trouble calling himself I am. They were arguing about how old he was. And he said, that somebody, you know, they, they, they went round and round in circles on this thing. And in the end, Jesus simply said, before Abraham was, I am. And the reaction was really over the top. You remember the reaction? They wanted to kill him. Well, bad grammar is bad grammar, but that's over the top. <laughs> before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? He's saying, Yahweh, I am. If I talk about me, I would say last week I was so-and-so. This week I am so-and-so. Next week I will be so-and-so. God doesn't. He said, last week I am so-and-so. This week I am so-and-so. Next week I am so-and-so. One thing never changes, my am-ness. I don't get into this past, present, and future thing because I live in the continuous, eternal present. I have neither beginning nor end. I am not contingent on anything. I am complete and entire in myself. I am. You see... The reason I have to talk about myself in past, present, and future 
is that I am actually limited by time and by space. Time and space are the limits in which I operate. Fish are limited to water. Birds limited to air. I'm limited to time and space. It shouldn't surprise me because part of the created order is time and space. And I'm part of the created order, so it makes sense. If I'm part of the created order and time and space are part of the created order, then that's my sphere of operation. But God is the creator, not the created. He is separate from his creation. He is something else from that. And so, because he is separate from his creation and is outside time and space, what that means is this. He is totally different from everything in the created order. He's something else. He is holy. He is not contingent on anything. Everything is contingent upon him. He is something else. Holy. Holy. Just check on Exodus chapter 15 for a minute. Exodus 15, children of Israel have been brought out of Egypt, escaped the Egyptians. Uh, Well, I don't need to go over the story. You know the story. When they get over dry, dry and safe through the Reed Sea, get into the wilderness, start putting things together, getting all set for the Holy Land, Moses sits down and composes a song And this is part of the song, Exodus 15, verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Good question. I I would say Moses was the right guy to ask that question. You remember, he was brought up in the courts of Pharaoh. They were grooming him for a top job in Egypt. All the nations round about were very, very dependent on Egypt, As Egypt went, so everywhere went. As the Nile went, so Egypt went. And everybody knew that. So all eyes were on the Nile and all eyes were on Egypt. And therefore, Joseph, learning the ropes for the whole region, is fully conversant with all the tribes and all their religions and all their gods. And he is just the guy to say, having made a careful study of all these tribal groups, understanding their culture, recognizing their religion, being fully conversant with their gods as they understand it, I want to ask a rhetorical question, who among the gods is like Yahweh? And the answer, of course, is no one. Why does he say this? Well, he is thinking now not so much that Yahweh is I am. Now he is thinking of what I am has done in the midst of his people. And this is how he describes it. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, 
working wonders. Working wonders. The children of Israel at this particular point are all struck. They can't believe it. They have just experienced things that are beyond their comprehension, and their hearts are stilled before him. We were in Amman, Jordan, just two or three weeks ago, and we had the privilege during the day of being involved with many of the Syrian refugees who are coming over in their multiple thousands into Jordan. And just this week, in fact, we had dinner with one of our Jordanian pastor friends just Friday night. And he told us we are gearing up now, swamped with all the Syrian refugees, we are gearing up now for a whole new surge of those from Iraq because of the events of this week. And they all find their way to Jordan because Jordan is the site of three of the ancient cities of refuge. And Jordanians still pride themselves as being a haven for refugees. And they're there. First time we went to Jordan, it was to the Palestinian refugees. Then, then years later, it was the Iraqi refugees. And then now, it's the Syrian refugees. And then next week, it's going to start with a new surge of the Iraqi refugees. It is a desperate, desperate situation. And in the midst of it, God has some people, and if I may use the term, they are something else. They are something else. In those Islamic countries, swamped by people, destitute and desperate, there they are, lacking in resources, sharing what little they've got. We were there to help them. And in the evenings, we had meetings to anybody who wanted to come. And I couldn't believe how many people who were not Christians were coming. And it was very obvious they were not Christians by the way they dressed. The end of one of my talks, one of the men who'd brought his friend from the local community turned to him and said to him, this is your first time in a Christian church. This is the first time you've heard an explanation of what Christians believe. What made you most happy tonight about your visit? What a lovely question. And the man's answer was wonderful. He said, what made me most happy tonight in my first visit in a Christian church, and the first time I've heard what Christians believe, is I learned... I learned that unlike the gods of other religions, the Christian God is seeking men and women and boys and girls. And it makes me very happy to know that God is seeking me. 
Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? When we think in terms of his mighty power, when we think of his loving grace, when we think how he transcends all the created order, when we think of how he is utterly and totally separate from all that he has created, including mankind, and let me just add here, including the fact that he, separate from all that he is created, by definition, is separate from all that he's created that is fallen. So his separateness is separateness from fallenness. So was holy means initially separate. It means secondarily, by definition, separate from all that is contrary to his nature and purposes. And the short word for that is sin. Sin. Separate from sin is not the initial meaning of holy. It's much broader than that. It is a secondary meaning of profound significance. So what does our text say? Leviticus chapter 20. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Well, I just noticed what time it is. And uh, I have a confession to make. That is the introduction (laughs) to my talk. (laughs) 